Ho, ho, ho. Merry Christmas, everybody. <laughs> Welcome back to another episode of Set Scene Shot. We hope you're doing great in this December time, despite COVID rates rising. Funny enough, the number of packages being shipped worldwide is at an all-time high, with over 8 million more packages being shipped this year than last. And what fuels Christmas? None other than capitalism and religion. So for this week, we decided to choose a film which touches on both of those great themes. That film is none other than the 2007 Academy Award winner, recently named the New York Times number one film, There Will Be Blood. This surprised me, to be honest. I've heard a lot of mixed reviews about this film throughout the years. None of them would were like, wow, you have to see this film. A very heavy capitalist theme and a very dark story nonetheless. So, under the joyous celebration of Christmas, which is the unification of religion and capitalism, we decided to have a look at this two-and-a-half-hour epic. There Will Be Blood details the come-up of oil tycoon Daniel Plainview, acted by Daniel Day-Lewis. This film invites the viewer into the excitement and sinister nature of the oil business, particularly of the late 1800s. This is fueled by powerful cinematics and excellent actor chemistry. I thought the relationship between Daniel and Eli was phenomenal. Funny enough, the filming of the oil geyser caused so much smoke that it disrupted the Coen brothers' film No Country for Old Men. So, in celebration of this materialistic holiday, which stands for many things, one of them also being the celebration of family, we decided to invite you on a quest with us to better understand the perils of Western capitalism through an analysis of There Will Be Blood. This film follows the rise to power of Daniel Plainview, a charismatic and ruthless oil prospector driven to succeed by his intense hatred of others and desperate need to see any and all competitors fail. When he learns of oil-rich land in California that can be bought cheaply, he moves his operation there and begins manipulating and exploiting the local landowners into selling him their property. Using his young adopted son, H.W., to project the image of a caring family man, Plainview gains the cooperation of almost all the locals with lofty promises to build schools and cultivate the land to make their community flourish. Over time, Plainview's gradual accumulation of wealth and power causes his true self to surface, and he begins to slowly alienate himself from everyone in his life. This takes place during the turn of the 20th century, and it's a story of family, religion, oil, and madness. What was your initial thought after seeing the film? Was it something that struck you as, like, wow, this is an epic, or ah, I'm not too big on this? Well, afterwards, I was like, that was pretty damn good. But honestly, I was skeptical for the first half of it. <laughs> I think in my brain, I was just thinking, this is just another Western, another movie about striking oil and making it big. I didn't see like what set it apart in the first little bit. Had you seen any films about oil tycoons up to this point? Not necessarily about oil tycoons, but I've seen a lot of movies like about the West and making money off of oil or other means, like production. Yeah, this was a new thing for me about There Will Be Blood is it centralizes around the oil boom. Yeah. So here in Utah, 
there is a gas corporation called Sinclair. One of the large families in the area owns the Sinclair oil line. And funny enough, this film is based loosely on a book by Upton Sinclair about an oil tycoon. And it got me thinking a lot about the history of oil within the United States, particularly in our state. I was pretty unfamiliar with that portion of U.S. history of when these oil tycoons started to come up, what the motivation was, the logistics of even thinking of pumping petroleum and moving it from these small towns to big cities. So in that sense, I felt that this film did a great job of immediately sucking you into the storyline and really grabbing my attention and drawing me in. Overall, for capturing such a large span of time, I thought it did well keeping the editing clean. No, yeah, I agree. It did do a good job with timeline. We want to talk mainly about capitalism in this episode. We've touched on this idea throughout several of our other episodes. But here we really want to give it the time of day and talk about what capitalism has done in our society and how it affects our culture. So first, let's start out with the origins of capitalism. I'm going to be honest with you. I did not know a ton about the origins or who the big writers of capitalism were prior to reading a lot of this stuff. You probably knew more. Have you read anything by Thomas Munn or John Kerry? Um, I've read a little bit of John Kerry. But I haven't read a ton of capitalist-specific works, mainly because a majority of Western-written history operates in capitalist societies, so often literature, art, everything is a product of that. I was operating under the same assumption. I think we tend to think of capitalism as this very pervasive entity, but from an economic and a cultural standpoint, I didn't necessarily understand where it did come from i want to just do a quick history of capitalism because most people our age are reading about marx and marxist theories but not necessarily reading the text on capitalism unless you're in business school i guess i'm going to focus first on industrial capitalism industrial capitalism can be defined as an economic system that relies on an investment in machines and technology that are used to increase the production of marketable goods and so this is very much a business definition of capitalism, one that defined the industrial age. Capitalism really started to grab hold in Great Britain during the era of the English Civil War. The reason for this being is the British crown had placed regulations, royal monopolies on a lot of goods, and the Civil War allowed for a more free market that could throw away these British crown regulations. What we start to see is an increase of people starting to be in the state. This causes an increase in demand for agricultural food supplies. In order to keep up, farmers have to invest in technology which improved crop yields. This increased amount of food caused lower prices. In order to maintain making the same wage, innovation was tasked to come up so that you could increase your yield so that the lower food prices allows you to still make the same wages. So in England, wages were staying the same for everybody, but food is cheaper now. And what this means is that people have more excess wealth. They're able to start spending on consumer goods, creating a market for consumable goods. This is a new idea, surprisingly. And it actually sowed the seeds for the Industrial Revolution in the sense that fewer people were needed to work in agriculture due to the higher efficiency 
and more workers could start to work in industry. So it provides the population to start the Industrial Revolution. We have this arm of capitalism that has to do with buying into systems. You have investors that invest in you, and you do and create some consumable product. And as you make money, you return the capital to them. So it's a loan system of types. But capitalism also hinges on a cultural system. So not only is it both a financial economic system, but it's a cultural system. And I apologize to any economics listeners out there. I'm not familiar with the very precise language to use here, so I probably butchered some of that. Capitalism encourages a new set of values in the population. These allow consumable goods to be bought, and then the private investors maintain their yield so that it maintains the system. Some of these values include a high risk, may yield high reward. This starts this machoism idea, something that you could be even linked to masculinity. Dare I say, linked to masculinity again. (laughs) They have to appreciate the innovation of technology, and they have to believe in investing in something would lead to a better life. So let's take a quick example. Let's say I'm a bean farmer in Great Britain, and I'm farming myself some pinto beans. What I decide is the sale of beans is getting more and more cheap, so I have to sell more beans in order to stay making the same wage. So I decide to invest in a till and a horse. And the idea has to be there that I don't just have to work harder, but I actually have to invest in new technology and bring it in. And then with that investment, I'll be able to work and pay it back off and create an increased yield that will bring more consumable goods and more money back to me. This idea is popularized through Thomas Munn, and essentially during the Industrial Revolution, there comes to be this understanding that men and women and everybody in between are both producers and consumers. This is their role within society. We start to talk about Enlightenment thinkers, and we touch on John Kerry, who is often credited with the conception of capitalism. But he believed that the main spur to trade, or rather to industry and ingenuity, is the exorbitant appetite of man which they will take pain to gratify. And he argues this is the natural state of man, that man wants more. He is greedy at his core. By working, he's able to satisfy that greed, and he's willing to go through pain in order to get there. But that is the idea here, that people can be both producers and consumers, and they want to consume. It is their nature to consume. Now, capitalism sounds all right. Everybody gets to have more consumable goods and maybe gets to live a better life. If I'm a farmer and now I get to own some nicer clothes, maybe that matters to me. Sadly, the Industrial Revolution and capitalism also caused some really dark things, such as child labor, working conditions being awful. And then unions were organized to try and improve working conditions, and the capital investors were like, "Mm mm-mm. You ever read Sapiens? I have not read it. This book is not at all about capitalism, but he takes like an evolutionary approach to humankind. In his analysis, I wonder if he would argue that capitalism was just an evolutionary process. Because the way he describes the means of production and how that kind of came about sounds kind of similar to this. Yeah, to me, it's really interesting to examine the communist ideas that started being developed and the capitalist ideas that started being developed. And with the advent of the Industrial Revolution, it seems almost inevitable that humans would have fallen into capitalism at that time. 
and in an alternate universe what would have happened if we were more focused on not growing the population but instead creating communities and i think it's so hard to look retrospectively and be critical of capitalism at the time because for these people it was an improvement in their lifestyle and now there's so much pent-up hate towards what capitalism has created but it's so integrated in our culture sometimes it's hard to have a conversation that's productive in the sense that yeah there's a lot of sinister things that capitalism has created what can we do in our personal lives to get away from it yeah we've reached a stage where we're in what's called the late capitalism a term coined by werner sombart we're at the point where capitalism is no longer an economic and cultural system but it's seeped into all aspects of culture and life and society like language and science and it's inescapable at this point yeah and that always to me begs the question is it even worth debating a different system yeah it's always good to think of what else is possible but how do we start making small moves in our lives to get to that reality i can tell you okay go for it education we gotta educate people we gotta change people's mindsets too it's not a matter of saying this is better it's laying it out in front of them and showing them what these economic systems are and what these different thinkers thought and then have them do with it what they want. And people have to think that it's possible because if you think it's not possible, then it's not going to be possible. You got to get in the mode where you're like, change is going to happen. If you had the amount of money to change education, what would you do in order to get away from capitalism? It's not that we need to change education. We need more access and it needs to be readily available and not as expensive. So we've gone quickly over what capitalism is. We hit the extremely fast overview of it without very much nuance. But capitalism takes center stage in There Will Be Blood. And we see truly two manifestations, two sides of a pendulum, if you will, of how capitalism has manifested itself in Western culture, specifically American culture. And that is in religion and oil. That's partially why we chose this episode, because sometimes it feels like Christmas as a holiday is rooted in both religion, Christianity, and consumer goods. I felt it best that we approach this episode by examining the two representations of religion and oil by looking at the two characters which are foils somewhat eh, nuanced foils and that is eli sunday and daniel plainview let's break it down starting with daniel plainview literally daniel in hebrew means god is my judge daniel's last name plainview is an ironic gesture daniel is anything but someone who lets things be in plain view. He artfully navigates deals by obscuring what is in plain view to give a seeming benefit to the recipient. He is the archetype of a snake oil businessman who is able to convince you that you need something or that you're getting something out of it when truly he is the one profiting. The obvious example of this is him going to the Sunday ranch and just saying, we're hunting for quail. And we want this land to hunt for quail. 
Yes, there's oil there, but we, we want to hunt for quail. Simmer down. As with most names, there's always some seeming symbolism. Greg and I differ on how we view plain view's motivation and consequence. So we're going to go there. We're going to diverge. So I think his motivation is greed. And I think as a product of his greed, he becomes isolated. And this is intensified and kind of evidenced by the destruction of family in his life. So he doesn't really start with any family that we really know of. He adopts H.W. And although he is a very tactful businessman as he's going around with H.W., he remains pretty stable, I would say. And then once H.W. is sent to a boarding school is when things really start to spiral and where he really starts his descent into this madness. Yeah, it was when his son goes deaf. Yes. And so his isolation is a product of his greed. Even though he claims he hates people and competition, I think isolation works here to show almost the end goal of capitalism. But it's also like, to get to that point, you have to go insane. So you're arguing that his singular motivation is greed. Yeah. And his isolation is a result of that greed because his want to have family is never above his need for greed. Yes. And it's all driven by capital. It's all driven by this want to have more money. Yeah. So I do think Daniel is being genuine when he voices to Henry, I look at people and I see nothing worth liking. I want to earn enough money that I can get away from everyone. My view differs in that I see his primary motivation and end goal that he wants to be in isolation. He wants to get away from everyone because he views everyone as less than him. He has this God complex that very clearly surfaces in his interactions with Eli. The only way to get to that type of isolation is to utilize the oil business as a vehicle to live the way he wants to live when he's older. This is where I think our two ideas overlap because I think he wants isolation, but in some ways you could just be isolated if you wanted to in a shack in the middle of the West. No one would bother you. You'd be isolated. But he doesn't just want that. He wants more. He wants to have this big mansion with a bowling alley of all things inside. And that, to me, brings out the essence of greed within Daniel. So then maybe his motivation is ego? Perhaps. I think the God complex has a lot to do with it and this proving himself ideology that is played to him. But I don't think he has a problem with isolation either because the beginning of the film puts him in the mine alone. So it seems counterintuitive that he's just going on this journey to go find more oil and have to work with people to get bigger and bigger when that itself goes away from his end goal of isolation. So there's a secondary force, perhaps greed, perhaps ego playing into him here that his isolation is caveated by his prominence in an industry. I think one of the most defining moments in Daniel's whole arc is when he says, I want nobody else to succeed. Competition is like the only thing that truly motivates me and drives me. And this is where we really get the good comparison between capitalism 
and Daniel and how manifested capitalism is in Daniel. Because capitalism relies on competition in order to continue progressing a free market. I think the opening scene here does an excellent job of framing Daniel's motivations. He is willing to do whatever to get that silver out of the mine in order to make some money off of it. The muted palettes of nature, the grime of the mine, the elegant sparks of him hitting this pickaxe against the rocks, and the tension of the music. The fact that there isn't any talking in 20 minutes and you very clearly get a sense of what Daniel is motivated by is beautiful. Furthermore, Daniel is willing to do whatever he can to get to the top. His need to win is so great that it seeps into his family life. He picks up HW not because he cared about this employee that he was working with. He simply wants to have a prop to appear as a family business. And I think he does start to gain a sense of affection for HW. Oh, he totally does. I mean, he raised the kid. Yeah, and it creates a real sacrifice for when he has to say goodbye to HW. But he said goodbye so, like, it was like he didn't even care. There is one thing that I read about and I rewatched. He does shed a single tear. Oh, he does? When he is dropping off HW. So there is an emotional attachment. And I think that's what's powerful here is that he chooses capital and oil over HW, even though he has some investment in HW. That makes sense. And it's also like just a product of the times. Any time before maybe 30 to 50 years ago, anyone with any sort of disability, it was not something you could take lightly or just learn to live with because it was so hushed and so almost like taboo in this case send the kid to boarding school which is for the deaf like it was a good decision because i think ultimately it helped hw but it's not like you could reconcile a quote normal unquote life with a disabled child yeah it seems what defines that moment is not that he is sending him to a boarding school, it's that he is leaving HW at that point. He is not going with him for the schooling. He wants to stay. His primary concern is the oil. Yeah. So to me, his goal of isolation is really rooted in his need for competition. And as we sit here talking about it, I also am curious that a competitive person is never content settling with whatever socially constructs uh, non-successful person to be they want to be the best at anything so maybe in that way his isolation can't just be without competition which is almost an oxymoron in a lot of ways because competition relies on people so wait is your definition of isolation in this case physical isolation where you're completely alienated from everyone and society or like family or like business I'm talking about physical isolation okay, because I think like that's physically what, by himself. That's what Daniel talks about. Okay. He doesn't want to be around people and he doesn't want to have his business rely on people. So granted that we differ in how we view Plainview's motivation for what he's doing, we do agree that two primary threats to his vision are introduced as tension within the film. The first, like we've touched upon, is family. And there's an interesting connection here with the title. There will be blood 
has multiple meanings. The first of it, biblical. Yes, in Exodus, during the plagues of Egypt, God speaks to Aaron through Moses and says, take your staff and smite the waters. And directly he says, there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in buckets of wood and pitchers of stone. It's a plague of blood, but also death. (laughs) Non-religiously, we're talking about bloodshed and bloodlines. I thought a lot about the title because there isn't like a singular moment where you're like, oh, this makes sense why this film is titled this. But blood and bloodlines play a very important role in Daniel Plainview's life. Daniel has two family characters that are introduced. The first of them is H.W. And the arc eventually creates one of the most heartbreaking moments in the finale of the film. At many points, like we've said, Daniel shows that he cares for H.W., but sadly enough, Daniel truly is only seen laughing and smiling with his son when they find oil on the property in California. Like Kiki talked about, there is this tipping point where oil rips away H.W.'s hearing and creates an obvious tension with Daniel. That scene where they're cuddled together, both covered in oil, you can tell that H.W. can no longer hear his own voice. This whole scene builds to show that Daniel is just very frustrated that A, this person he cared about is going through this pain, but moreover, he can no longer use his son as a vehicle towards capital. To maintain this idea of a family business, Daniel accepts this stranger Henry as his biological brother. And we see the two start to develop a bond. H.W. sees it too and literally tries to burn the bridge between the two. But when Daniel finds out Henry is not of his blood, he kills him in a very, very violent scene. What's weird to me here is that both of these characters exhibit family-like relationships to Daniel. They care for Daniel. They look up to Daniel. But because, at the end of the day, neither of them is of his bloodline, neither of them ever truly come into his world and are valued at a level above capital. They are simply a threat to his end goal of isolation. Personally, I think this is a purposeful move by Anderson in the sense that many of the old oil families that we've previously touched on in the United States really were able to continue this wealth within their family. So he takes it a step further and says, let's imagine an oil tycoon that wanted to just be alone and in that sense would be wildly successful as a capitalist, but did not have that family aspect. So he becomes just this singular entity who holds a lot of wealth and does not pass wealth generationally. And so I think there is an element here of bloodlines and heritage and the importance of family in both keeping people sane, but also in what capitalism can do to a family, regardless of if they're tied by blood or not. So you're saying he has a bit of a saturn complex yeah he's afraid of losing power in some senses yes he's not committed to anybody that he's not connected to by blood 
Well, th- I mean, that's a question, right? If he had a real son or if he had a real brother, would he have treated them differently? Would he have shared his wealth and gone away from his madness towards isolation? We don't know. But what we do see is that none of these false brothers or false children he creates, even though the relationship is that of a son or of a brother, none of them are worthy of becoming the higher priority. He always goes on to view capital above family, although it's not technically family, so it's caveat. Okay, I don't necessarily agree, but I think that's because I don't agree that his motivation is isolation. I feel like his lack of family, that I don't necessarily think is his fault. He had this son, and I think, truly, if he didn't have to send him to this boarding school, I don't think he would have. But he had to, because his son went deaf, and that was perhaps the best way to help him. And then Henry, who turns out to be a fraud we'll say he kills him out of spite and i feel like it's this lack of family that leads to more greed and but i don't think it's an it's it's an intentional like he's trying to shed his family away Mm. do you think when we are in family situations or have family we are exposed to a different sense of giving yeah you have to think about other people Yeah, and I think this is where family becomes antithetical to capitalism because capitalism is so rooted in competition. Families in the United States were never viewed as competition. They were often progeny to continue the farm. Mm. And so in my eyes, it's a way of viewing Daniel as the ultimate evolution of capitalism because he is able to disavow everyone and focus uniquely on himself, making him the ultimate capitalist. That's a superhero for you. <laughs> That's Jeff Bezos. <laughs> I'm no, Jeff Bezos, the ultimate capitalist. Literally. <laughs> Religion presents the second threat, Plainview's goal. Whether it be greed or isolation, it represents a great tension with it. Competitively speaking, Daniel really only loses once in the film, and that is to Eli Sunday when he is forced to sit at the pulpit and claim, I have abandoned my son. But let's talk a little bit more about this character of Eli Sunday before analyzing their inevitable conflict. Who is Eli Sunday? He's the preacher. He's the twin of Paul who shows Daniel the land in little Boston, California. A preacher, borderline false prophet, which is what he's accused of by Daniel towards the end of the movie. But yeah, really interesting character. Let's go quickly over the comparison between the two characters and how they mirror each other and also how their dissimilarities evoke specific ideas of capitalism. First, Eli Sunday, obviously a very religious name, and his name evokes Christianity, with Sunday, of course, being the main day of worship. This, again, references that satirization of last names that Anderson chooses to use, Eli Sunday and Daniel Plainview. There is a heavy usage of biblical naming within Eli's family, although it doesn't necessarily seem to add any particular meaning by examining Abel, Eli, Paul, etc. In the end, I think what it's just trying to do is say this is a very religious family, 
but is it almost so overt that it's like, <laughs> we're going to do this in a way to make sure that you trust us as religious, even though we're fronting to really create something maybe more sinister. Yeah, well, it constructs the complete opposite end of the same pendulum that is Daniel Plainview. Everything Daniel stands for and all of its extremes are almost challenged by this religious family. And it's so opposite, but it's very similar in one way. And it comes down to money. Mm. In the beginning, Eli aims to expand the church by utilizing money from the sale of the land alongside a secondary influx of membership, obviously all those that are coming to work on the well. And at first, this intention seems honest because he's just trying to create a religious space where he can heal people. But then we actually see a service with Eli. And what we realize is that both of these men have a way with words. Their most powerful thing is their voice. Eli's voice is crazed. He casts the ghost out. And it's, it's kind of terrifying in a lot of ways. But it's similar to how Daniel is able to convince people that he is an oil man. And what makes the eventual deafness of H.W. so tragic? No longer can Daniel pass on this thing to him that he values so heavily in himself. This sows the seeds, though, for Eli that uh, something is not right, and this perhaps is just a scam for money. What we see is that Eli's motivations are really truly concreted in the last scene, and he's begging Daniel for money based upon the property and the oil below. At the end of the day, no matter how prolific of a preacher Eli has been through the majority of film, his end intention remains capital. Whether or not this is just a result of his environment or his true persona is yet to be seen. I mean, churches are businesses. Yes, at the end of the day, at the end they of the are. Day. But it's a very touchy subject. This yeah. film got oh, a yeah. heavy critique from the Christian community because it paints Christianity as such a sinister thing. Do we know what sect of Christianity this is? Because this is very, like, holy roller. We don't, and I don't think they purposefully target a religion. Yeah, okay. I think the evoking of both Old Testament and New Testament and all of these other moments make it hard to pin down on a certain religion, which makes me think it's not the intention of Anderson to paint this as an anti-religious film. It's just showing that it's a business at the end of the day. And being in America, you rely on capital and you have to undergo the capitalistic process. Well, religion is inevitable in a capitalist system because religion provides relief to the suffering from capitalism. Eli and Daniel interlock in a power struggle rooted in the control over Little Boston and the profits from Little Boston. Each plays cards to humiliate the other in an attempt for submission and capital gain. Interestingly here, it's not just about capital, though. It's also about ego. And this film maybe is not as heavy in masculinity as uh, Art of Self-Defense, but I think it goes to show how capitalism and masculinity can be tied together. But don't you dare say masculinity is the root of all problems. Just kidding. But capitalism is the root of all problems. <laughs> That's because it is. 
<laughs> communism is the best. Okay, can we look at the examples of communism that have worked? Oh, wait. <clears throat> Where are they? Uh, That's because most How countries many times has it been tried? It's because they have not implemented it correctly. Oh, oh, a ton of times. So you have the answers. It's authoritarianism masquerading as communism. It will work if it's implemented right. But humans have that ability, right? Humans are not selfish at their core. You start with the mindset. Mindset has to you shift can change from the mindset of the self to the mindset of the community. People are too inherently selfish is what I believe. But don't you think education can make the shift? No. You know how many educated people I know? You know how many educated people I know? <laughs> <laughs> how many educated people you know, bro? <laughs> you know how many educated people I know that are so fucking selfish? All Mo of them. Most of them. <laughs> Every All of academic them. professor I've ever met. Everything is rooted in capitalism. That's Everything. That's right. Except research, obviously, because research is this golden Yeah, circle. research is the only good thing in the world. These interactions drive the conflict of the story, creating a wonderful tension between the two characters, again touching upon their great chemistry. Anderson makes use of heavy technical and visual storytelling elements here to emphasize the changing power struggle, and I think he does this elegantly and consistently. So we see their two worlds start to conflict in many ways. First, they are baptized in different things. Very simply, Daniel is baptized in oil, while... Eli is baptized in holy wa water. And I think they come back to the visuals of how this film was done, and it's phenomenal with the oil on their faces. You see, again, the black versus white in both dark scenes versus light scenes and also underground versus above ground and oil versus no oil. A lot of contrast. One portion of this that I'd like to note is they actually had to create a water-based oil substance that had a certain viscosity to depict what it is like working in oil that they could paint themselves with and do it in such a way that it wasn't going to be toxic crude oil another element that continues to create tension is the difference between the steeple and the oil well and both of these have this very pointed structure which is reminiscent of a certain type of church you can see eli try to gain control of the oil well by wanting to bless it it's very heavily foreshadowed that the marriage of H.W. and Mary will happen between the two families as they're under the steeple. But this steeple, again, is oil, showcasing that these families and this conflict is all rooted in a tension between religion and oil. One thing to mention quickly is that both men have a God complex, and they both quote to each other, I am the third revelation. Again, this comes into ego and the place of ego in capitalism and how there is this pick yourself up by the bootstraps mentality that exists so much in American history because that's how you become successful in capitalism. That's what a free market enables you to do. But it's taken to the extreme by Anderson to showcase that these are the type of men that you're lifting up. When we all know that that's not true. Like, grit. I believe in working hard, but the idea that just anyone can work hard enough and you'll make it to the next level is bullshit. I'm an angry crybaby capitalist. There is a paired conflict here shown that this tension between church and oil comes to fruition at the church initially, and then later at the bowling alley. 
And the film really provides these two pivotal moments where each man is forced to examine what they have become under the guise of capitalism with the lines of, I am a false prophet, there is no God, and I have abandoned my son being extremely powerful moments in the film. In the end, there is no better man. There is no alive man here like in the art of self-defense. It's more so that they both have done horrible things to get where they are, and they've both done it under the guise of capitalism. Tension in the film is done incredibly well, especially in these scenes with the score by Johnny Greenwood of Radiohead. I love in the ending how it brings back this joyous curtain close uh, violin music. Yeah, the score was excellent. One thing I questioned here is why did they choose a bowling alley for the final scene? Is it you think it's that bowling is just something that developed out of capitalism? And that, like, it's a manifestation of capitalism? Or is it, like, oil strike? Also bowling strike? Oh, maybe. I don't know. It's just, like, an excessive thing to have in your house. Yeah. Like, why you need a bowling alley in your house? What I'm trying to say in all of this is that the conflict between Eli and Daniel highlights the manifestation of capitalism in both religion and oil. Both men's conquest for capital leaves them isolated. Daniel kills Eli, showcasing his need for competition at the cost of totally abandoning his family. He even remarks that the reason Paul is better than Eli is that he was able to leave his family for the conquest of capital. So Daniel's final line after he kills Eli is, I'm finished. I thought it was a funny end to the film. Yeah, it was a little funny. It made a me A little smile. ironic. Mm-hmm. It comes back to the idea of the God complex, that he is the third revelation, that when he is finished, only then can we all be finished. It sets the precedent that Daniel's agenda is the most important because he has the most money. It's self-perpetuating, like he's basically imploded in, in himself. So the genre of the Western and the disappearance of the American frontier, that is inevitable in all Westerns, but... That's the thing, is I feel like, I don't know, I took a class and we watched a ton of westerns in the opening scenes. It's interesting that you were like, it was brilliant and it set the whole thing up, which it did. But I was also like, this is just another western. Because it operates in that register. They have vast open shots of the landscape. They have a very defining score. Heroic, in air quotes, characters. And all these other things that are in line with western movies. But it does subvert the Western genre at the same time because it's about the West and it's about prosperity. But it's done in a way that shows capital's self-destructive tendencies. It's the underbelly of the Western. That's interesting. I feel there was this rush and excitement associated with oil that was very Western. Well, it's the underbelly in that, yes, there is a, a rush, but it's underscored by all of this evil and all the bad parts of that narrative that are not often told and the sacrifice that it takes to be successful in that landscape right did you appreciate that in the film yeah i mean i appreciated it but i thought that deadwood did a little bit of a better job at that and we see this right we literally see the frontier disappear as the film progresses we see urban living improve And this is all reinforced by an all-white cast. And a heavy male-dominated cast. That too, yeah. In conclusion, 
Daniel and Eli both represent the manifestation of capitalism within the United States, specifically the Western frontier. Daniel represents a capitalistic fantasy where every decision is made for personal benefit and competition is the saving grace by which he lives. What's the point of the film? Well, I've come to conclude is that this narrative reinforces the Marxist theory of alienation, which is a critique of capitalism. Social alienation is what happens in societies that have a stratified social class with low degrees of common values. The idea is driven by capitalism in the sense that the distance between man and his product is increased as the Industrial Revolution continues to carry on. Marx takes this a step further and says man becomes alienated from his own product when he works in a factory because he's only seeing a portion of the final end piece. And because man's purpose is to work or that he is rooted in base and superstructure, his life becomes meaningless when he can't see the end goal, so he loses his true sense of character. This Marxist theory of alienation is apparent in the way that Daniel begins his dealings with these other people. He wants to get so high in social class that he becomes the top dog and there's nobody else at the top. It's furthered in the cinematic vision from Anderson. There's constant vertical imagery, which incorporates the idea of the capitalist hierarchy, and the ability to only think of yourself is really manifested in so many of the dialogues where they're all done with up-close face shots, not necessarily a 2D view of two characters talking. So we're going to transition quickly into what I got from the film, and that social isolation is a result of capitalism. Simply speaking, the drive for competition causes a loss of empathy and spotlights selfishness. And this ideology thrives in the workings of capitalism. We talked previously about positive feedback loops and how capitalism creates several of them to keep the economy going. I think it also creates a positive feedback loop for becoming more of an isolationist. This is furthered by the sense that every character who ends up winning is one who is able to forget their family or their bloodline and become this capitalistic fantasy. The depiction of capitalistic isolation as being superior is particularly dark, though, especially when juxtaposed against the story of Eli Sunday. Mm-hmm. This is a dark reality that Anderson is depicting, and I think what he's trying to show here is what happens when capitalism goes too far. Yeah. Under the capitalist regime that we live in, it's sometimes easy to get paralyzed in thinking that, well, we live in a capitalist world, we can't do anything about it. But Kiki and I believe that there are certain things that we can do in the holiday season to remember that we do have some power and that we can protest these systems. You can read things from multiple perspectives and from many different people. Perspective is everything. That is very biased coming from a humanities major, but perspective counts for a lot. One thing we think provides a lot of value is shopping local and buying local ethically sourced foods, those kind of things. And yes, they come at a cost that is higher than others, but for those that have that privilege to be able to choose, you should be voting with your dollar to support these smaller corporations in order to take away power from capitalistic structures. 
Yes, and while it is a bit more expensive, you're not tempted to buy an excess, which is another thing that perpetuates capitalism. Lastly, don't forget to support used consignment stores. I know some people have a problem with old clothes and whatnot, but cotton is honestly one of our biggest wastes currently, and it's very good to find those vintage items that give your wardrobe character. Yeah, and thrifting is in. Also, just vote. Vote for people who are going to represent you and your ideals. Read about who you're voting for and what they stand for. And vote for people who are going to support social programs. And to that point, in the holidays, so often we find ourselves buying gifts for others. And... This is great. It encourages a sense of giving and empathy, which pulls away from isolation. And for that friend that is similar to Daniel Plainview, or that you just don't know what to get them because they seemingly have everything they want, maybe it's a parent, maybe it's a sibling, maybe it's a friend. Think about donating in their name. Or ask for donations in your name. On that lively note, what was your rating of the film? I'm not trying to cause any controversy, but I did like it, and technically it was good. It wasn't as amazing as I was expecting. Maybe it was too hyped, but it was very good. This sounds like you're building up like, oh, I'm gonna about to fucking toast this film. <laughs> I'm not going to toast I'm gonna, it. <laughs> I'm not going to toast I'm about it. it. I'm just about wasn't... to drop a four on this bitch. And, uh... <laughs> no, definitely not a four. I just, it wasn't as great as I thought it was going to be. And obviously aesthetics count a lot for me, but I don't think it was enough for me to be like, wow, like I was blown away. But the narrative was good. It, I mean, it was all really well done. I think I'd give it like a seven and a half. We've been on a theme with a seven and a half lately. We really have. Well, but like six to me seems too low. Seems like you want to give it a six. No, I don't. I feel like it wasn't particularly unique. And I feel like, I don't know, I would have liked to see a sort of spin that would have set this film apart from other works. Personally, I am going to disagree with you in that this film is not unique. I haven't seen any other films about oil tycoons. And again, like I said in the beginning of the podcast, this was a new concept to me and a new story. It was done very elegantly in a way that brought about the conception of the oil maker and showcased the history of them, but also shined light on what the role of the oil industry has been in shaping our modern society today. And I think the lessons can be applicable, particularly to our political climate right now, and also to the tech corporation. I think of excess, and I just can't help but think of Amazon. Mm -hmm. Watching a movie and having an ability to speak on other topics besides what the initial film was built around is important to me. This film kept me interested, too. It was a very good storyteller depiction. And from what I'm getting from you, it sounds like it didn't necessarily jive with you in the sense that it was not the most entertaining story to you at the end of the day. Well, it was an entertaining story. I just think it's one 
that's been told and not necessarily about oil tycoons but one that's following a man who makes it big in the west and becomes greedy i guess i'm having trouble thinking of a film christmas carol scrooge that's a fair point there are weird parallels between this film and the christmas carol with the biblical references and the usage of all of the ghosts Personally, I think I'm feeling something similar to you in the sense that this story is interesting and it's well executed. It operates on multiple levels and speaks to multiple things. But at the end of the day, it's not always easy to relate to. And I don't necessarily feel a personal element of tie to Daniel. Maybe that's part of it. But he was memorable. The movie lingers in your mind. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Because I think it missed a little bit on that, I'm going to give it an 8.5. I thought this was a very well-executed movie and one of the more entertaining movies I've seen in a while. Because of the hype, I probably overthought a lot of it. <laughs> but <laughs> so is hype. And I've enjoyed going back and watching some of these films like Pan's Labyrinth from the late 2000s that were super acclaimed and that we would see in like Blockbuster or Hollywood Connection and yeah, and be able to explore them now as older adults. Yeah, we just got to get you to watch movie pre-2000s now. That's it for this week and this episode. We hope you've enjoyed this chat about capitalism and can take away something going into the holidays for an appreciation of materialistic wealth and its origins in Marx and Carrie. Next week, we'll be going after The Mirror, 1970s version. We're also considering doing The Nest, which was a Sundance film. If you have a preference between The Nest and and the mirror send us an email our email is set shot podcast at gmail.com and you can find us on google podcasts stitcher apple podcasts and now spotify we appreciate you leaving a comment giving us five stars and leaving a review have a happy holidays be safe we hope that you're able to reconnect with some of your family if not all of them over the holidays maybe this year you can try putting a pickle in the tree Oh, do you do that? Oh, yeah. We have the pickle ornament. Yeah. Yeah, of course you guys don't hide it. Classic. (laughs) Why is it classic? Classic. I think you take the pickle very seriously. Oh, you take the pickle very (laughs) seriously in this household. Uh, Maybe you can hide a pickle in your tree, and it, it always provides some fun morning entertainment. I think we got those in, like, second grade. Didn't we? We did it, and we got the mention of it in second grade. Oh. And I kept that shit going. Well, I got the pickle ornament in second grade, I think. Anyways, thanks for tuning in. We are happy to be able to share these talks with you. We look forward in 2021 to keeping the podcast going and hopefully getting a vaccine soon so we can get out and see some films. On a secondary note, Sundance is happening this year. You can get a pass and stream all films, which is pretty exciting. If you're thinking about giving, don't forget to support your local theaters. I know I've already made my donation to Salt Lake Film Society, our local theaters. With that, we'll say I'm I'm finished. finished.